Live from the internet, it's the Local Host Podcast with Mark Drew and Rob Dudley. Hello from the internet. In this episode, we'll be delving into the documents and rows of that tricky subject that is no SQL. Let's get on with the show. Joining me on this journey into the wonderful world of data structures is Mark Drew. Hello, Mark. Hello, Rob. How are you doing? I'm very well. Uh, very good. Um, good to be back recording yet again in the new year, albeit possibly a little bit later than planned. Yeah, I mean, I'm glad that we're doing this. Is I'm excited for this new season. Uh, we have a plan, and we're not going to stick to it. Because, you know, who sticks to their plans? Well, to be fair, we are sticking to the the first bit of the plan, given that we planned to do no sequel as the first episode of this year, and lo and behold, we are. <laughs> yeah, but the thing is, like, if you you have to start and then like deviate, otherwise you're just not doing anything. There is just no okay. plan. Fair. So you think that there is no chance that we're going to stick to the plan after this episode? Yeah, we're going to change our mind. You know it. But anyway, let's not give away our secrets any more than we did in the fairly extensive promo. Yeah. episode for what's coming up this year which if you haven't heard it yet you know just go and give it a listen it, it lays out our plan in all of its glory um but enough about plans cunning or otherwise we're here to talk about data and databases databases and sql and not sql yeah i don't think not sql well before we get into this you know i i have to say that no sql is a really bad name for it but bef- before we talk about wtf is no sql we should kind of recap for our re- listeners what SQL is, because I, I, I'm guessing most of our listeners know about relational databases, right? I would hope that you know most of the people listening to a development podcast have had some exposure to a database at some point. Yeah, in the last few years at least. But um, so... What is SQL? Well, I mean, that's structured query language, right? It's, it's a... It's a language that we just use to talk to databases right and databases are basically a whole bunch of tables with some data in them that are related to each other yeah pretty much pretty much so been around for ages as a a a solid business solution to the problem of storing modeling and querying um structured data right uh um i think a pattern has been like how do you build an app it's always been like i have my programming language whether it be php uh ASP.NET or Fusion, whatever, Java, uh, Node, uh, well, Node's a newer kind of thing, but you always had like a database behind it. That's where you stored all your permanent stuff and you had all your code somewhere else, right? Yep. And every app on the planet generates data that needs to be stored. Right. Um, And so they came up with this system whereby you could group that data into columns and rows, which fitted quite nicely with, I don't know, ledgers or something, Um, and also put them into tables and then further put those into schemas, and then some genius decided that it would be really useful if we could relate all of this stuff together, and lo and behold, your standard SQL relational database is born. Fantastic. But in a way, these are things that came from pre-web scale stuff. So we've got this idea of ACID, right? Not the... The music from the 90s but you know the the acronym acid is for atomic consistent isolated and durable which is a very posh way of saying that the data that you've stored is the data that you can get back right yeah and it's basically the four rules that govern a, a decent database system to ensure well annoyingly to ensure consistency which is one of the four letters but right uh yeah um, so we can use them safely. We know that our data isn't going to get flushed away. Um, it's it's going to be there. And also that if you know something does go wrong, uh, we're told about it, we're not left in the dark, there's no, no question marks. It's very safe and, and frankly, quite dull approach to data management, which is what you want, right? We want this to be boring and dull and predictable and reliable. Exactly. This is the one bit of like uh, you know web development or development that you want to be boring and reliable and literally not one of your problems, right? Yeah. This is another thing that you start messing around. You have transactions that you can say that you can roll back or commit once you're happy that that what you've been doing, how you've been interacting with the system is done. 
And that's it, right? So why would you come up with another analogy? That seems a pretty good way of storing stuff, doesn't it's, it? You know, I mean, it is a good way of storing stuff. It's been proven by time. It's been proven by the the uh, the vast amounts of profit made by Oracle and the <laughs> likes of the purveyors of these massive commercial database systems. Yeah. It works really well for a lot of business use cases, but it is not without its problems. I mean, one of the, the big ones is that if you start thinking of modern stuff, like records, records have got data within them, right? So you've got, like, nested data within it. So it's not, like, just a name, a surname, an age. You might have a list of addresses, which you now need to store somewhere else as a related data. So whenever you change one, you have to, like, cascade those deletes or... or cascade those updates etc right well this is and this is the the problem of limiting yourself to a row of data right even with very flexible column data types is that by definition um and by the book if you're designing a good database you break it out yep. you know you normalize that database so that you will have addresses separate to the user records and what have you and then you need to maintain those relationships you need to make sure that yeah as you say when you delete something you're not left with a bunch of orphan records but there's also there's 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 bigger problems as well not least of which being a lot of the updates that we do to this data, a lot of the work that we do to this data, does touch multiple tables and multiple points. Right. Um, and other people might be touching those tables and multiple points yeah. at the same time. Um, and it can get quite tricky to ensure that actually we've got um, a solid, very straightforward update. I want to update my personal profile. Right. Um, but that goes off and it touches a whole bunch of bits of the system and some of those may actually be asynchronous and it just gets a bit messy. Right. Not least of which... Um, and I'm sure we're going to come on to this in a second. Um, pretty much every language has attempted to actually remove or or mitigate the need to write an awful lot of SQL, and is trying to map the you know the the underlying programming object directly onto the database using like an ORM framework or similar. Right. And we very quickly realised that actually this stuff doesn't fit. Yeah. The objects that we create. The, the 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 programming structures that we build do not map neatly onto a, a a grid based system of data right and that's why very clever people do stuff like orm or gorm or all these object relational mapping systems that are trying to expose the data in a programmatic kind of way like our business domain so we stop talking about like the bits and bolts you know that that we're stuffing into a database and we start talking about the actual problem domain right yeah, but in so doing, we there we inevitably have to either simplify or add complexity, perversely, to our software, um, because the only type of object that we can model in a database is a simple one, which has properties. You know, we can't handle nested objects very well. Fair enough, we can handle relationships. Um, but again, it's short thrift when you consider how you would build a system that didn't have an ORM behind it versus how you build it because it has to have an ORM behind it. Right. Um, don't want to get into the specifics of RM implementations okay. because this this could be a whole <laughs> other episode. But for ex I think a, a simple example of the the problem in this is that, as well uh, is that the database is, is designed for its own structure, not your structure, and it's not designed for usage. Right. So what I mean by that is that you could save someone's record, which has addresses, which has invoice items which has a whole bunch of stuff, which would be something that would appear on one A4 piece of paper, right? Yeah. Which is fine because there's a whole bunch of relationships and inner joins and, I guess, outer joins or whatever for, for list stuff. But then when you go and query everyone's, you know, you want to do a, a, a count of everyone's invoices, you now get into this massive query of a whole bunch of relationships that, of course, someone's going to pop up from behind and say, oh, well, you can solve the slowness of that database by doing indexing. And what's actually the truth is, is that the database has been designed for data for the database uh, use rather than for how you're going to actually use the data. If that makes sense. Yeah, and I'm sure that we've all, you know, almost all of us will have been there in a situation where either we've had to throw indexes at a database to improve performance because actually we've got a, a, 
a new type of query that we didn't see coming. Right. Or even we've had to denormalize our database and, and do some things that aren't best practice in terms of data design to make the damn thing workable. Um, so it's a constant compromise. Yeah. It's like, for example, an example that I think will come up to uh, a lot of people is if you have a system with various objects in it and you have users in it and you then you have either permissions or subscriptions and stuff like that, they're great in your head when you def define the relational database between all these things. But when you have to come up to read all of that, you then start getting into a whole chain of joins to get who's subscribed to this item, Yeah. right? Or who should be notified of changes in the inverse kind of way. This is it. And the thing is, I mean, the database server itself is actually perfectly happy to do all of those joins for you, right? Yeah. Um, there's there's no real problem with it from their end. But from our end, we're having to write potentially quite complex queries. Uh, and we, you know, you almost always end up wrapping these in like a little helper method somewhere. Yeah. Um, get overdue invoices by customer slash country or something yeah. um but again it's we are forced to bend to the very rigid structure of the traditional sql database It's not flexible and of course th this is all, all fine uh if you have one physical database stored on one machine that you then have to start scaling you know vertically because you have all the twitters in the world in it you know people are doing massive amounts of inserts and even a bigger amount of reads, you know? Yeah, so the scaling patterns for SQL, again, there's a bunch of them around. Um, but again, they all seem to be either horrifically complicated to set up or very, very simple, but you compromise. Well, master-slave type relationships. Yeah, so you've got stuff like uh, replication, which is brilliant, but a lot of that replication is asynchronous uh, or it's synchronous, but your performance is now in the toilet. Yeah. Um, you know, scaling these things out horizontally is actually incredibly difficult to do. Scaling them out vertically, absolutely not a problem, um, which has been pretty much the go-to solution. Database running a bit slow, yeah, put it on a bigger server. Yeah, mate. and it's also a, a thing of the time, right? So now we have, you know, now in 2018, we have IoT, you know, Internet of Things devices that are capturing all the data, right? We've got our phones giving away our location every millisecond. We have someone tweeting hundreds of times a second around the world. And we have, like, the economies of scale, or not the economies of scale, the, the actual scale of the data is now actually called big data for a reason, that there's terabytes and terabytes of data out there that you are capturing for various reasons, right? And also the, another pattern that I've seen is people using the relational databases for storing everything, right? So we're talking about logs, we're talking about... Uh, stuff that is ephemeral, so it's like people's sessions that really should die off after a period of time. So then you create SQL cleanup scripts that to clean up that data if you remember, and then that script doesn't run. I had a database table the other day, um, well, a database that, you know, it was huge, you know, to carry around for the different developers to use, and it was a snapshot from, from a live database. So, you know, which one's this big table with several million entries and it's basically every action that anyone has ever done on the site got logged to this table uh the good old audit log table yeah the audit log table and it was dated back to 2005 nice that contained a I lot of like, rows. Is this any of this useful? And that's the other problem that we run into, is that actually whilst you know most relational databases are very good at handling large quantities of data, um, they are inevitably become less portable. They require more disk space, and doing anything on those tables once they've got you know a couple of million records in them, beyond just adding new data and querying it, is very very hard. Yeah. So you know the whole point about a table-based system, it's structured, right? That structure is effectively unchangeable um, once it's in production. We had um, a, a client years back. I don't want to name them, but they had a lot of users, several million. Like let's say country size amount of users. A small country. <laughs> um, and one of the problems was that they wanted to add another column to the to the table, which was like when Twitter started getting popular, was saying, this is our user table, we want to put a Twitter handle to it. Mm -hmm. And they said, yeah, that's not going to work. That will take overnight locking the table to just add this column. Yep. Um, and 
that's you know the kind of stuff that again I can hear the the uh, the um, relational database admins, the old guard, um, waving their sabers at us and saying, "Oh, if if you'd architected it properly, that wouldn't be a problem." But fundamentally, we we don't we don't plan properly. We're not good enough at this stuff, um, and you run into all sorts of. But it's not so much that uh, stuff changes, right? Yeah, you designed your database back in two thousand five. And now you have to add a, a Twitter item to it, right? Good luck you know, predicting like, Twitter. Is, yeah. It's like, oh, you had a bad spec because you didn't predict the future. It's like, well, no, the, you know, shit happens and you have to just deal with it. And, you know, the business changes needs and what have you. So it should be, you know, able to change with you without doing massive data migrations. Well, that's the plan. Yeah. Is there an alternative? Well, I, I think that the title of the show kind of gave that oh, away. Of course there is. So there is an alternative, <laughs> or, or there has been a number of alternatives coming into the ecosystem, uh, and they've all come under a bit of an umbrella. So that umbrella is like NoSQL, uh, which was a a term coined by Carlos Strozzi in 1998 for an open source uh, relational database with a different type of API, which was not a SQL, you know, transact SQL type API. It was more of a programmatic API. Uh, and I think the term was then kind of reused in 2009 by Eric Evans and Johan Oskarsson from Rackspace and Last.fm to discuss open source distributed databases, right? Which was like basically was that we interact with these with databases, but not using SQL per se. Mm -hmm. um, I think it's a bad name for it now. Uh, I think a more up to date name would be Alt DB, Alternative Databases or Data Storage. Maybe it does make it sound like these are the databases that are kind of sitting in the corner at parties, just being a bit edgy. They don't really don't really <laughs> want to talk to anybody. Yeah. Anyway, um, but yeah, I mean, the thing is, it's it's typically enough we don't get to pick the names for our stuff by and large. Uh, and NoSQL has um, been raised to encapsulate more or less anything that isn't a traditional RDBMS. Right. Which, but which is kind of I think unfair because a lot of stuff has got grouped under it. But I think we'll get into that in a in a in later on in the podcast. But. I think they all come under this whole idea of the cap theorem, right? Um, the cap theorem is this idea that uh, any of these database systems have three things going for them, uh, consistency, availability, and partitioning. But you can only choose two of those, right? So Okay, so it's kind of like an iron triangle style setup. Yeah, it's like whether well, you're in a fast, good, cheap, right? You can only yeah. choose two. Similar, one of those triangles, yeah, right? So, so I, I guess consistency means that every person that's um, interacting with your system gets the same view of the data, right? So if you went to the Twitter stream, I don't know why I'm hitting on Twitter so much nowadays and there's more complications here, you know, we'd all see the same thing if we're not logged in, right? We, we just, this is exactly the same stuff that's in there. Or if you're looking at your account, you know, doesn't matter if uh, who looks at it, whether it's the, the the bank or the shop that you're buying something, or yourself on a machine. You all see the same balance, right? There is no there's no disparity of the data because it's still waiting for stuff to catch up. So, at any given point in time, what we're saying is that consistency means we get the same results for the same kind of query operations or or read operations across the board. Right. Availability it means that all the users of the database can always read and write. And that's the important is, but they can always read and write the data. It's not like, you know, it's like if as I'm writing, I can, you know, have to wait until I finished writing to read it. You should be able to do that at the same time. And all your clients can do that all, at all time, which is kind of good, right? This is a point of a database, right? Yeah. So it means presumably, you know, that we're not heavily locking or um, you've just got access through and through, right? Right. So you're not getting like, wait whilst, you know, we finish with Bob's. Uh, uh, insert and then I'll get to your select, Mister. Um, and then the last one, that the P, is the partition tolerance, which means that your system works across a, a different network partitions. In other words, you can split out your data to different machines and different networks. Uh, so this is clustering essentially, right? 
Well, it's clustering, sharding. It's, yeah, basically, if you have a partitionable thing, then you actually have a horizontally scalable thing, by and large. Right. Uh, so, you're, you know, you've got to, like, choose those. The other part of NoSQL at the time was this, this whole idea of Dynamo implementation, which was uh, Amazon's highly scalable key value store. Dynamo is a bit of, you can think of it as a spreadsheet that can be distributed, that doesn't matter where you, you don't care where it is because Amazon AWS's system just handles it, uh, but it means that you can put key values in there uh, and it's like a spreadsheet, right? So you can say this value is here, this value is here, and you can do searches on that. And doesn't matter how big it gets, it can get super, super big, terabytes and terabytes of data. You always get the same data. Cool. So that was one of the, um, and it inspired other open source versions, as any commercial software kind of does, which one of them, the bigger one is Hadoop, uh, Apache's Hadoop. Yeah, so um, Hadoop will be familiar to anybody who's done anything in kind of the big data space. Um, and it's mm -hmm. it's data processing, isn't it, more than storage? Yeah. So that that leads me on to the next part, which is the next, uh, which is the map reduce algorithms, which came out of Google. It was a it was a, I think it's a patented Google, algorithm. I don't know if it's still patented. That might have. Might have I see it, it everywhere. But yeah, I mean, map reduce is everywhere. Yeah. So basically, what we should say is that like the map reduce in is is a massively parallel way of processing your data. Right. Mm -hmm. uh, so it indexes data as as you update it. So it means that if you insert a new record, you can run a whole bunch of uh, logarithms along it that will update stuff. And the, the two functions are map and reduce. Right. So map essentially processes each each for every item that you put in, you get one item back, uh, and reduce for every. It reduces like many items into one value or one record or whatever you want to do it. Um, a good example, I think, of that would be that rather than doing a select query to count how many users you have or how many transactions have happened, is that as you insert users, you render out the data to a different record. Okay. Right. For example, if I delete a user, instead of having to do a select star from users count the users, you actually just have a like user count table that has the number of users in it. If you update a user and say that their bank statement has been added, you use a map or reduction logarithm to update your total rather than doing a sum uh, at runtime of all the totals. Is that a good example? I think, uh, to be honest, it's as good an example as any I can think of. I mean, I suppose the the key the key thing about MapReduce is is what it actually, um, why it was so popular and how it fed into, you know, the NoSQL space, and it was all around this concept of well, our data is getting bigger, we need new paradigms and new ways of manipulating and working with that data that are much more parallelizable, are much more scalable. Uh, and MapReduce is pretty much the best example of, and there are a bunch of other techniques that can be applied, but it's the best example of one of these new concepts that um, kind of gained popularity alongside this new type of data store. So we can start looking at existing databases uh, with this, with this, with our cap hat on. So by databases, just to clarify, we're talking about database servers or database providers or applications, right? Yeah, storage means of somewhere to store your data rather than Oracle. It's like what, you know, whether it's a flat file, whether it's, you know, something more complex, whether it's an Excel spreadsheet, whether it's uh, an access database. So, for example, like a consistent and available uh, relational databases, that's what they do. They're really good at that, but they're not petition tolerant, right? No, not out of the box. Not out of the box, but even out of the box, there are trade-offs, the caveats, right? Yeah. So something that sometimes is not all available, which you can call something eventually consistent, is ones that are uh, consistent and are partition tolerant. You know, is MongoDB and CouchDB, for example, Memcached, Redis, means that they'll sync up somehow and they should be used for data that doesn't have to be, like, atomic. In other words, you say, uh, a tweet would be a good example for this, right? You do not need to see 
across various different nodes in your database cluster when a, a tweet has been sent. It's not that important. Yeah. Right? I mean, and when I mean instantly, I do mean like, you know, halt the presses. If this tweet is not across every single database, nothing else can work. No. Right? So this is great for kind of the the eventually consistent or the you know as and when style data storage that a lot of the modern web realized it was generating uh, whereas previously in a relational db we'd be looking at table locks to make sure everything stayed in sync and wait till all the nodes update um and yeah stuff like mongo stuff like memcached and redis take a much more relaxed approach yeah that's that's a good way to do it so something that's always available and has partition tolerance is stuff like dynamo right so you know that you can always write to Dynamo, you can always read from Dynamo, um, and Cassandra React. 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 I've never used it, so uh. um, they kind of you know sit in a similar space. So that's basically you guarantee what that it's available, um, that they can you can spread it out. However, you trade off their um, consistency, right. so you may not get the same view of the same data. And this is something that, to be honest, everybody's seen. Um, Cassandra famously is Facebook, right? And oh, know, yeah. there, there, are, there are myriad stories of um, Facebook being utterly inconsistent, whereby you know some user will be able to access a photo that was deleted because it's still cascading around the system. And it's, yeah, a bit all over the shop. Yeah, I mean, in that is, is despite those problems and those minor incidents, I would say, because it's not like a thing that happens all the time. It doesn't matter, right? In in the for the business case of that Facebook is trying to solve, it doesn't matter that that photo is still viewable for a few seconds afterwards, right? Absolutely not. Or that the like count hasn't updated because you're accessing via this server rather than that server. Um, no, right. they worked out very early on that um, their entire business model is trivial and nothing that happens on Facebook is important. Um, and therefore, that can be reflected in their data storage, right? And I, 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 it sounds glib, right? But that's that's literally kind of the engineering view. Was well, actually, this stuff isn't critical. It's not life or death. If we get there eventually, fine. Yeah, and sometimes you have to take that view. But can you imagine if they did their relational database view of that? Is it becomes a really expensive? It would be yeah, horrific. But at the same time, you're not going to take that approach and build air traffic control. Right. They're always eventually consistent. I mean, we'll find out when the plane arrives. It's know. up there somewhere. It's somewhere. <laughs> you know. Um, yeah. So, uh, but then you wouldn't be, like, working with partition tolerance, right? You'd go, like, well, no, we have one database of all the planes. Yeah. But that also now brings you different risks. Right? It has to be. In, the, in your example. Is that... Um, the cleaner comes in and unplugs the database because she needs to use the the, the plug socket to, you know. Yeah. And be, suddenly I, that database goes down. I really hope that they've got a bit more resilience than that. But yes, the the lack of, <laughs> you know, partitioning means that scaling and uh, failover and, and redundancy have to be very carefully built into those systems. Whereas, to be honest, Redis, um, React, Cassandra you can literally just chuck new servers at them. They sync themselves up and they kind of just get on with it. There's no drama, no muss, no fuss, right? So, I mean, and things like that is really great for stuff like caching, right? You just, you need to store more more ephemeral data, um, just add some more databases to it. Yeah. And as an example. The other thing that, um, I mean, we're, we're going to get on to types and we'll probably cycle back to some use cases, but yeah. um, memcached, for example, memcached DB, um, it's in the name. Yeah. You know, this is a memory cache database um, that tells you what they designed it for. Yeah. Um, but the plus side, because it was designed for that, and fair enough, you can use it for other stuff, it's really fast um, at pulling, you know, cache style data um, back out. You know, Redis, again, um, is really, really quick at doing these simple operations. And then you get into the more complex stuff, Mongo, um, certainly in Couch, which are know a bit more full featured but even then generally speaking these things perform better than oh yeah an rdbms that's been manhandled into the same configuration i saw a great demo of uh, have you heard of processing no processing is a language for doing artistic programming it can be in java or in in javascript and various different languages but basically you can make an app that 
processes graphics and things like that very easily. I saw a demo of someone streaming video data that he'd converted to black and white to do a MapReduce to find out how the brightness of the image was mm -hmm. straight into MongoDB. So you can imagine it's like 60 frames or 30 frames a second times 640 by 480. So each pixel and storing each pixel and just chucking it in. And uh, he was filming an audience and we all lifted up our pieces of paper, which they'd handed out just a plain piece of paper. So the audience would look whiter in a black and white you know, image of his webcam so that we could vote and see the brightness levels. But all these were calculated out of MongoDB. And it was fast enough to do all the inserts and selects at the same time. Not that it does select, but you know what I mean. Yeah, yeah. The, the equivalent of data retrieval. Yeah. Uh, to draw you a nice chart in real time, which which was of this all this data, you know, gathering so much data. I think it was something like 50,000 inserts a minute or something like that. Yeah. Um, and it's not just the inserts. It's, it's on the way out as well. I remember I did a... a presentation on mongodb a few years ago and as preparation for that i actually took a, a facebook profile generator that generated effectively the kind of data that you see if you make a facebook api request so a full profile okay um and generated 60 million profiles basically the population of the uk okay and did all of this uh on my macbook air with four gig of ram <laughs> Um, and fair enough, it took a long time to load the data in because it was generating, but once it was in, it was perfectly usable, and the laptop was still usable. You, know, you could query this data, you could cross-cut it, and you think that's 60 million records worth of fairly rich data um, just kicking around in a, a, a crummy little laptop. So these things are performant as hell. Yeah, and using that example, for example, if you ha you had the profile of everyone in the UK with MongoDB, because is a document database, which we'll be getting onto in a second, there is no schema, right? So if I wanted to add a Twitter handle to one of those people, I could modify the document that they're stored in there. Yeah, yeah. Without having to modify everybody else. The other 65 million people. I was going to say, this kind of brings us neatly onto the, the various different types of NoSQL. And this is part of where I start to get a bit tired of the, the name NoSQL. Uh, because, as we're about to discover, it actually covers at least half a dozen very large families, all of which can be considered completely separate technologies in their own right. Yeah, it's kind of a, a bit of myopic. It's like the only way we can access databases by SQL, access any data is by SQL. It's like, well... Or, or by not SQL. Those are the only two flavours. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a bit weird looking at it. This is why I said like alternative DB or, or new DB. I like old DB. Uh, technically, NewDB is actually one of the subset of the families that we're about to talk about. Um, oh, is it? Yeah, <laughs> but we'll, we'll come okay. on to that in a sec. So let's start with um, probably the most prevalent, um, yeah. which is the classic key value store. Right, so that's a structure, right? That's a map. That's essentially yeah. a, a, a big hash table of stuff. So you have mm -hmm. an ID and a value. Now, what yep. that value can be depends on the implementation, I guess. So either some of them are like, just chuck me whatever value you want. Whatever it is, I'll store it. Um, in other systems, it's like, well, actually, I'll retain the data integrity. So it's like if it's an integer or if it's a string or if it's something more complex like a document or a XML document or a JSON document, you know. Yeah, so some of them some of them have types that allow, you know, different bits and pieces or driver-based translations based on the type of data that's going into it. The nice thing about key value is that their simplicity belies their massive power. Right. Um, and certainly you find this when you when you actually uh, as a challenge try try and take a problem that you would normally reach for a SQL database and don't <laughs> try and solve it with just a key value system like Redis. And don't use all the whizzy shininess. Just literally use data in key value. Um, and a couple of things happen. Firstly, you find that actually key value maps much more neatly onto the standard kind of programming workflow than than SQL does. Um, and secondly, that it's actually you don't lose much. Right. 
considering you've gone from all of these tables, columns, and we've got indexes and what have you, to I just have a key and it has some stuff, um, you can still do a surprising amount of really, really good stuff just using key value. So what examples of that? Would we have like Redis, Memcached? Uh, yeah, so Redis is, I think, the big one. Yeah. Um, Memcached, I believe, isn't Cassandra key value? Yeah, I think so. Frantic Googling. Yeah. Um, yeah, so there's a whole load of them. Um, I mean, realistically, if I were going to get started, I, I, I use uh, Redis a lot. Um, it's my go-to for a whole bunch of different stuff, mm. not least of which because of one very, very cool feature that's built into Redis, which is the ability to have expiring data. Oh, yeah, exactly. Um, I absolutely love that. It's like no more maintenance jobs, no more I've got to go back and clear this out, but just, yeah, when you, you, you set with an expiry key already in place and that data will just disappear. Well, you can do a couple of, of methods, right? Sorry, you can say you can do. You have a couple of methods in there, which you can say this this data expires at a time, or if it's not being accessed. Uh, yeah. So what you can do is you can have kind of a, an automatic refresh, basically that resets the counter. Um, but yeah, so um, absolutely love Redis. It's brilliant. It's also scalable as all get out. Um, it's really really easy to cluster. It's you know, stable and it can. Uh, the only thing I would say that can trip a few people up is make sure that you know whether or not you're running it in memory or whether or not you're persisting back to disk, and understand what it means to persist Redis back to disk because the performance does start to get a bit choppy. Um, it's perfectly workable, okay. um, but if it has to flush that memory back to the disk every so often, obviously you're going to get a, a performance blip. Um, that's not Redis's fault. That's mm. just because disks are slow and rubbish. Yeah, um, memcached, a lot of people rave about it. Um, there's all sorts of different interfaces um, and different variants of memcached, but fundamentally, I think it was it's the go-to if you're building object caching or similar into your application, if you want to just store data that's come yeah. from another, uh, another database. Um, interestingly, there is actually a, a variant of memcached that will sit as a proxy to, say, MySQL. All oh, right. Okay. Yeah. So, you can, so if nothing's changed in the database because it's monitoring stuff going yeah. in, isn't um, it? So basically, you can almost drop it in as almost a transparent caching layer for your database. Oh, wow. And that's when we're talking about caching. Fair enough. We cache objects, but by and large, what memcached was used for was caching the results of more expensive database operations. Um, so yes, big fan of the key value. Um, big up the Redis massive. There we go. <laughs> big up the Redis. Uh, the next type that, that we come across is a column database, which is a bit of an extension of the key value uh, systems, but it's more more keys, I guess. You could look see it like that, so that they're big spreadsheets, so to speak. Yeah. So this is the Dynamo implementation being the, the, the go-to one, which essentially, if you want, what I use it for is to have like an ID, which every row has to have an ID of some sort. But you might also have like secondary IDs, like it's a type, it's a user ID, um, and then you can have your data. And it kind of, the only thing that it says, it says like, look, I don't mind how many columns you give me, but these ones are specific ones and are required. Mm -hmm. Which means that you can then, then behind the scenes, I presume, Amazon can then shard that, they can cluster it how it wants using those identity columns. Um, usually you have a primary and a secondary one. That then means that you always have access to very big data. You can store as much as you want in there. Uh, some of it is a bit, bit the, the Dynamo implementation is a bit voodoo because it's just AWS are just handling it, right? It's just voodoo that they do. Yeah. Um, I mean, to be honest, I, I, I've not done masses with um, Dynamo or with anything specific for a, a column um, database engine. My understanding is that actually this is um, part of a much more traditional approach to um, data mining um, and kind of falls into the same family as, as um, OLAP, the ability to basically flip your data so that instead of being row-focused, you are now column-focused. Right. Um, and literally, that's part of what you do to, to start generating like an OLAP cube, which gives you all of the different dimensions of the data um, in one data set that can then be qu queried and cross-cut and you've every which way. Um, 
So basically, it takes the the standard you know row-based system, flips it through ninety degrees, and what you actually get is something that is much more usable and much faster to read data out of. Which is uh, what you need for the quote-unquote big data, yeah, kind of applications, right? Yep. Then we get to the document databases, which is the ones I I like quite a lot. Uh, which is MongoDB, a bit example, CouchDB, the other example. I can't think of any other big ones off the top of my head. Um, I can't, to be honest. A big Googling, uh, I'm sure there's lots of them. But essentially, if you've ever looked at a JSON tree or a, an XML document, that's what they store. They have an ID, and they can have as many entries as you want, as many quote-unquote columns as you want. But those columns can be made up of structured data right yeah um you don't have a schema but you're able to add indexes a lot of fields are optional as i was making an example of of uh as we were talking before if you have all the population of the uk with their name and surname and their email if you have a whole bunch of people that don't have twitter accounts and you add a twitter column you don't need to add a twitter column you just add it to the people that have twitter accounts and, of course, remember to update your application to deal with the fact that Twitter may or may not be present in the returned data. Right. And that's the only thing that you have to do. And generally, you don't do this as a standard, but if you have an object relationship model, you can say, well, if there's no content in the Twitter field, simply don't save it. You're not saving nulls. You're not saving um, empty strings or anything like that to the database just to because you have to, right? So the the one thing I would say about document is the simplest example of a document um, style document store DB is actually key value. Right. Um, because at its strip it back, that's exactly what these things are. You you get an ID, an, an OID or um, whatever, um, and a document. But where the document store then adds value is not only can you define um, these very flexible structures, but you can do things with them. So you can pull only certain bits of that document out, right? So you get more into, uh, you're returning to kind of this, I want certain columns in a, a SQL database, whereas you can say, actually, I only want certain fields. Yep. Um, yep. Or any certain subfields. Yeah, yeah. Um, and you can bound those queries using something that isn't aware, but could be considered similar to aware. So you can you can run really, really quite in depth and rich um, data manipulations and build really um, rich data sets across your entire um, your entire system. And you do it all without ever having to worry about adding a new column or removing a new column, uh, removing an old one or similar. Right. Very very cool stuff. I mean, one of the things that I think was actually amazing about uh, MongoDB specifically was they have this thing called the aggregation framework, mm -hmm. which is where you do queries and you've got certain types of queries that you can do, which you can go and get a whole bunch of stuff. You can filter that. You can project it. In other words, convert it to a different format, then filter on that format, reduce that you know, by doing sums and, and counts or whatever, and then at the end of it, you can get a completely different shaped document than you put in, yep. right? Which is like a, a report. Yeah. To be honest, Mongo has, Mongo has a massive amount of tools around querying, um, aggregating, and manipulating this data. It's actually, it can be a little bit daunting, mm -hmm. um, given that they, they also never seem to just finish improving the old ones. They just add new ones. Um <laughs> Which is a slight dig yeah. at the Mongo team. Love your work, guys. But yeah, um, you've got about four different ways to do the same thing here. But yeah, um, so you've got massive amounts of flexibility. And again, all of this comes screaming fast. Yeah. The one thing I would say is that of the two examples we're talking about, and I do actually have a third that I want to come on to very quickly in a moment, um, you know, adding uh, nodes to, I think it was actually you, Mark, that I watched doing a, you set up a couch cluster. Yes. Um, and I think you did it in about, like, it was under a minute and it was like four clicks. Yeah. You basically have to tell them about each other and that's it. That's it. It's amazing. So you make the introductions and just let them get on with it. Yeah. Um, 
so in terms of kind of clusterability and and survivability i don't know if mongo has improved but certainly when i last used it in production it did come with a bit of a warning flag which was to say do not run this single server you will lose all of your data yes um and actually setting up Uh, i mean sorry go on yeah, no, exactly. I'm just following on what you're saying. It was just setting up a, a MongoDB instance is something... There There always has to be three MongoDB instances, right? Mm-hmm. So you have a primary and two slaves. Yeah. And they'll choose amongst themselves which one's the primary and the slaves, right? So you don't say which one's the primary and which one's the slave. So basically, each instance of a MongoDB structure would be three servers, including the configuration server that says which other servers are. So before you know it, you've got about nine servers having to run a uh, MongoDB, right? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Uh, yeah, so it can get complicated. I mean, what I think Mongo, uh, the company is doing is, is like making this available as a service and things like that. Yeah, so you can definitely get, I mean, if you want to play about with it, fine, install a single node, just don't use it in the real world. Um, for those where you, you don't really want the headache, you can either, you know, uh, Mongo provide all sorts of consultancy, uh, and there's all sorts of additional companies that will you can rent um, production-ready MongoDB clusters. Uh, so like MongoLab and uh, is it Object Rocket. Um, yeah, Object Rocket, that's other people, yeah. Yeah, um, and, and so all of this stuff is solved. But it can be, again, if you're thinking that, oh, I can just spin up MongoDB and it will save my life, um, it won't. Uh, you have to be a little bit careful around it, uh, as Foursquare found out to their cost because um, they built but also a big up to uh, CouchDB on some of, of, of its features because what you're able to do is say like okay when I insert something I want to update a different index so you can have a view that's always updated on the insert rather than on the call mm-hmm. that's very cool and it's been a while since I've used CouchDB but it has some very interesting features that means that you you define data sets that you want and the initial time to create it is quite slow uh, when you've literally defined it as a, as a programmer um, but subsequently it's super fast because that data set only changes on whenever there's been an update to the database not when that data set runs it's not a runtime thing it's a insert or update or delete awesome um uh, as I say, i've not i've not used couch but um, I do remember being very impressed with its its ease of use. And I suppose that's another thing, is that the reason that I say NoSQL is an annoying catch-all is because within each of these topics, and we're not done yet, um, there are probably two or three market leaders, and they all have slightly different specialisms and different plus points and different negatives. Um, right. So just bundling them all up as NoSQL is like, oh, seriously... Um, so yeah, uh, depending on what it is you need to do, um, you know, make sure that you've taken the time and haven't just gone, oh, I'll use Mongo because Mark and Rob said so, or oh, I'll use Couch because Mark said it was amazing. Yeah, you know, make sure that you understand the use case. Um, yeah. Speaking of which, we're now on onto my favourite NoSQL Alt DB family, um, and I absolutely love these. Okay, go on, Rob. Tell me. Oh, actually, no. There was sorry, sorry. I'm forgetting myself. There was one document, uh, a document database that I did want to quickly mention as a kind of relative newcomer, and that's Elasticsearch. Oh yeah, true. Yeah, I guess you can. You can. That's exactly it. Yeah. Um. So you know, Elasticsearch part of what's referred to as the ELK stack. Yeah. Which is Elasticsearch, Logstash, and Kibana, um, and they've basically risen to prominence as a really solid way of managing massive amounts of aggregated log data but on uh, the, the third of it that handles the actual data storage Elasticsearch does allow you to query uh, specifically bits of your documents uh, if you so choose it's kind of uh, I'm going to say slightly misnamed or maybe it isn't misnamed but you know it can do a lot of the stuff that MongoDB does is it's a document database it's just built around the idea of being able to search these documents which, to be honest, if you have a very search-heavy or read-heavy, um, you know, query-heavy approach, you may actually find that Elasticsearch suits better than than the equivalent uh, MongoDB in, in, uh, configuration um, because it's got these tools out of the box. And again, you need to understand your use case before you choose your, your weapons uh, to ride off into the arena. But just because, you know, like there's all these new things that you have to look into, it doesn't mean that you can just give up and go... 
well, I'm going to say no to SQL, no SQL, and I'm going to go back to SQL. That's 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 it. Yeah, that's... You, know, you should you should have a look at what what's good for your application, and not just as a whole, right? Because I think these are not, you know, wholesale replacements to your SQL database. The whole point is they solve a certain problem, right? Yeah. Um, and certainly, just to, to kind of say that, as I say, we mentioned that memcached is often deployed in front of or between the application server and the re the SQL database. Likewise, a lot of these systems, I don't build with just one type of database. You know, you'll, you'll use, I, I, I fairly frequently deploy as a default, I will have Redis and I will have MySQL uh, and potentially a another uh, depending on the requirements, but you know, having those two gives you a lot of flexibility. Likewise, it may well be that you decide, well, actually, we're going to deploy Couch for structured document storage, but we still need a cache, um, so you'd run with memcached. Mm -hmm. Or, potentially, you have to model a very complex network of relationships and trees, and you can't get your head around how to do it in, in a document store, and you're sick and tired of doing it in NoSQL, so what would you use? Well, that was my stinky link. Well, <laughs> do you want me to answer it, or will you actually tell us, Rob? Tell us, tell us, Rob. No, no, go on. What would you use, Mark? I would use a graph because it's all about like nodes and relationships between those nodes. Yeah. So, graph databases, um, and I absolutely love these. When I say these, um, I've only really used one. I'm sure. I'm sure there is. I'm sure that there is there. more think, than one. Yeah. There's Neo for J. I mean, let's have a let's have a quick look. But it's basically it's Neo4j is the um, ubiquitous graph database, um, and these take a really interesting approach um, to not so much data storage. It's all you know, it's it's there. It's it's B trees and hashes and blah. It's more the way that you relate data together. Which, considering that the the whole point of the relational table database was we want to be able to relate stuff. Um, actually, the table um, kind of two-dimensional approach does have some massive limitations in that there are some types of relationship that are very hard to model. Right. So, classic example being the um, the hierarchical tree. Right. Right. Um, of of stuff, which is actually a very common type of data. There's all sorts of scenarios that result in a hierarchical tree. Um, Storing that and querying it through um, SQL is quite hard, um, and it requires that either we add a lot of additional bits of data in something like nested set, or we make our query times very, very costly in terms of having to, to read and loop back, or we actually make the return data set huge by using a massive amount of internal joining to get the, the full hierarchy. So yeah, graph databases, any database basically that uses a, a classic graph structure. So this is nodes and relationships uh, between those nodes. It means that you can normally query like whole trees of things. You can query for just edges, for, for leaf nodes or similar. And they're scary quick um, at this kind of query compared to, say, traditional SQL. So for, uh, a good example with that would be the six degrees of separation of Kevin Bacon, right? Yeah. So if you get a person in IMDb and see how you can get to Kevin Bacon, uh, that's kind of a difficult thing. But if you have relationships, you can do that very quickly with uh, Neo4j, I think. Would you be able to do that? Yep, absolutely. So you can basically um, d you can discover a path or a, a route, if you will, between two nodes. It will return the edges. Uh, and the other thing you can do is, is really, really cool is that you can actually have each of these two things, the node itself or the edge, which is the relationship between them, can be further decorated with properties. Mm -hmm. So it's not just like you can say, oh, this thing's linked to this thing. You can actually say, well, this thing is linked to this thing in this way. Uh, and was linked at this time, potentially linked by this user or what have you. So you can get really rich, um, really rich data structures uh, associated with it. Right. So, like, especially in our, in our web and connected world, is is if you have all this data, it's like Rob bought this uh, product from your warehouse uh, after seeing this advert that you showed to him on Facebook. Uh, yes. <laughs>
or something I mean, like that. I'm pretty sure, and I'll need to have a look, but um, you know, the the biggest proponent of the network um, before Facebook was, uh, I think, LinkedIn. Right. Um, were the guys who did a load of stuff. They were really open about the fact that they were using it. Um, and um, yeah, the, the, I think they used Neo4j. I could be wrong. Another really good example, if you wanted to explore it, was uh, a bit contentious. But the um, IC4J project, which is like the International Consortium of Investigative Journalists, actually published a Neo4j graph-powered version of the Panama Papers data. Oh, really? Oh, wow. Um, and this is, you know, uh, politics aside, if you want a really good example of how this kind of database can just make exploring that kind of data really, really powerful and useful, go and check it out. We'll put the link in the show notes. Um. Okay, so you you love all the uh, Neo4j, but there's been some new ones as well, I think, that have come into the system. Because, you know, when I started looking at all the difference of the the NoSQL landscape, those were the four main ones. But uh, there's been some new risers, I say, in the last few years, which we've kind of touched on with Logstash. Um, But there is time series databases, right? Because, like, now with... um, containerization etc that we've needed to start getting all these logs out and start understanding them in time so we have these time series databases yeah in time and in sequence and again it's stuff that you could probably model using one of the others that we've spoken about right but there have been specialized tools that have come up to allow you to kind of query all the way back to 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 bound your data by um, date time without having to introduce that information. It's kind of a first class citizen in the data itself. Sure, anybody can add a created at an updated at timestamp, right? But having the concept of a modelable time series that you can also scale out, but you can play back and forth. Um, so you know, think of it like a, a, an audio recording. The ability to to say, actually, I want to jump back to this time, and I want to run forward through the data as it came in, right? Um, is something that is really really useful for all sorts of reasons. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, you can you can think of enough examples about that. So people using your site. So like, remember that table that I was saying about people interacting? Sure, you could get a list of these things, but you can is being able to rewind and forward that and using time as a as a dimension that you query across yeah. much easier rather than get me between this date and that date, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's also then being able to um, feed kind of time series data into things like, you know, um, statistical analysis um, and, and being able to use it to forecast, model and predict. Um, so one of the the most um, common uses that I see for time series data, aside from logs and what have you, is stuff like, you know, stock market information. Oh, yeah, of course. Um, where you have all these different prices at different points in time and you want to do a, a regression analysis or, um, or you know, predict whether or not what's going to be the next big thing. But you need to have that data in the correct sequence and need to be able to touch it and query it uh, and manipulate it within the context of the flow of time. Mm-hmm. Critical. Yeah. Um, and then we kind of get into because we're getting into for data storage um, there's also things like the newer generation of of almost queues or stream um, systems sure I've completely forgotten what it's called Kafka Kafka yeah I think we're about to start using it on a project so I haven't actually used it yet so I can't give you tell from the trenches but it's yeah you just chuck data at it and then you do operations on it and then decide what to do with it yeah and this is kind of bridging the gap between a traditional message broker, but also it stores that data, it persists it, it's time series-ish. Um, so it's got this kind of real combination of different properties from all of these different uh, different types. So we really are starting to kind of blur the, the very clear barriers between the different types, even within NoSQL, which means NoSQL is still a terrible name. <laughs> So if you take anything away from this podcast is that like the title of the podcast is a bad title for the system. Yeah. And are, are there any any new ones that we have? We've got Aurora, which is... Um... Well, I think that actually, because it's really easy to... when I found this when we talk about like um, NoSQL. It's really easy to, to be seen as the guys who are basically just battering SQL um, and the traditional RDBMS. <laughs> We're not at all. 
um we we still absolutely use them we just you know know that there are other tools out there yeah which may or may not be a better fit for some use cases but the guys who and the teams who've built mysql and these like traditional relational players have not sat idle they have been working to kind of improve some of the problems and generally improve their their own systems um, so this is where I say, I think I said before that uh, there's already new DB is already a thing. Mm-hmm. So these are referred to often as the new SQL. Okay. Oh, I see what you did there. Yeah, the no SQL and this is a new yeah, SQL. Yeah, I, not me. I can't claim can't claim credit. And these tend to be basically um, efforts to provide either compatible SQL interfaces, a very you know compatible and and comfortable structure, but they solve problems like scale out. And this is where the the big example at the moment of this is it's Amazon's Aurora database, which is MySQL compliant, I think, the driver. Mm-hmm. Um, so you can basically just use it like a MySQL database. Um, you don't have to update your code or anything, or in theory, not much. But under the hood, it scales like crazy because the Amazon team are doing yet more black magic and sacrificing Go to, to make their database super wizzy and shiny. The other... The other big example I would pull out as as kind of almost transcending is Postgres. Uh-huh. Uh, Postgres SQL is traditionally it was a relational database management server, but I think that these days we can pretty much say that it's become a lot more um, than just the standard tables, columns, and rows. There's graph database additions to it. There's document storage additions. Um, there's all sorts of work has been put into making it scalable and clusterable. And even the big commercial players are doing the same thing. Yeah, you know when you've got Microsoft doing, um, you know, their their data store or data management, document management rather, add-on to SQL Server, you think, yeah, some of these guys are paying up and uh, sitting up and paying attention. Oh, yeah. I mean, Microsoft was doing a lot with uh, Azure. So I was just looking up some stuff because years ago I knew that uh, SQL Server could query XML stuff. You could already put XML documents and output it as XML, which is like quite retro. Mm-hmm. But now all the cool kids are using JSON, and it can do that. And it can do it in Azure and 2016, I think. You can already yep. start querying and stuff like that, which means that you're not just storing a single simple value in your database, uh, or you don't have to, right? You can put a lot of more interesting data in. Yeah. And it means that we can actually be considerably more flexible because I mean I can't remember if we touched it or not, but the 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 one of the main joyous moments about using something like um, a, a key value or a, a document store is the ability to serialize an entire object, warts and all, right? And yeah. you serialize the entire thing down to that document and stick it into your database, and then you pull it out, deserialize it, um, and you can use it again which is something that ORM has been jumping through hoops forever to try and achieve mapping onto these columns. Um, Whereas, yeah, if you've got a document-backed database, you can just do it. Mm -hmm. Um, And it makes it super quick. So, yeah, um, there's also a whole bunch of uh, additional new SQL players. Um, I think there might actually be one called NewDB. It rings a vague bell. Um, and these are things like they're doing distributed databases, they're doing um, peer-to-peer-based distributed databases, and they're doing a bit of black magic to make sure that actually you get consistent read. You know, you can scale the thing out across multiple boxes, you've got resilience, but you can still get access to all the data that you need. And if you go and look at any one of these titles and kind of search for a list of, as of 2018, there's... In all of these categories, I'll say there's one or two big players, but there's always tens of alternatives or different projects that do very specific different things. So, yeah, there is a ton out there in the NoSQL space. So it's, it's something to like always keep a lookout, see what your, your use case is, and see if there's a better way of doing it. So, for example, uh, if you're doing a, a, you know, a lookup of people like a contact address book you don't have to store all like you know tables for addresses for fax numbers and all these kind of different relationships because you know obviously all your friends have a number of different phone numbers and things like that you could store that in a document database and mix it up with something else you know yeah and as i say the the big takeaway for me would be don't think that you have to pick a database you know you may well have data that needs the um, acid 
compliance of a standard relational database you know you're running e-commerce or similar but at the same time you may actually think well i can put all of my orders and stuff in there but i need uh, i can use something like mongo to be much more flexible for storing reviews or you know you don't need to use these things in isolation um, and they become much more powerful when they're not actually used in isolation when you effectively it's a cliche but pick the best tool for the job and i, I think on that note uh where we can leave our viewers to go and search for the right database for you. <laughs> Good luck. It's a jungle out there. How can people get in touch with us, Rob? Well, they can send a distributed database query to the <laughs> hash table that is Twitter. Um, just make sure that you key it with at localhost.fm. Or there's other keys. <laughs> other keys? Yeah. Oh, of course, uh, yes, at Mark Drew. Or at Rob Dudley. Um, if you'd rather not, you can just send a very boring email um, to hi at localhostfm.com. Try show at localhost. Show at, I'm sorry, too many email addresses. So show at localhost.fm. Localhost. Yeah, I'm just going to go sit quietly in the corner. Do you want to finish off telling them where else they can get hold of us? Yeah, they can get hold of us on Twitter at localhost.fm or show at localhost.fm. And uh, Happy New Year, kids. See you next time. <laughs>